0: turn to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. Well, several years ago, I was really happy with my yard, especially my front yard. I've been pulling out weeds, uh, been fertilizing, watering. I mean, things were looking good. Okay. So if you have a yard and you get really excited, I mean, it wasn't like I was going to make like a magazine cover or anything like that, but I was pretty happy with my front yard. Everything was looking pretty sharp. And then, lo and behold, in the midst of my great joy, I noticed it, there was like this brown area, like in there, and couldn't figure it out. What the world's going on? And it didn't just stay there; it kept getting bigger and bigger. And pretty soon, my my beautiful front yard was looking like a, like a wreck. Something happened. I'm like looking at it, and like I mean, I could pull up the grass, and like why is my yard dying? I was trying to put water on it. I was like, what did I do wrong? What happened here? I didn't know what to do. I, uh, I called a friend who's pretty good at growing arms, and I said, Hey, what do you think? This is my problem. He says, What you need to do is go get a shovel, stick it in the ground, pull up some dirt, see what you see. So I did. And lo and behold, there were these beautiful, white, uh, bloated caterpillar-looking things. They were ugly. And they were all over. I was having like a larva family reunion right there in my front yard. And I I was thinking of some names for these bugs. If they hadn't been named, I found out they had already been named. They're called grub worms. And I had a whole bunch of them. And they were destroying my garden. And what they do is that they eat away at the roots of your grass, okay? And they just chew it all up, and they just do that. And and, you know, if your grass doesn't have any roots, it dies. And that was my front yard. And if you don't address it, you lose it all. And they work fast. I mean, they got a lot of friends, and they're bringing them in in force. And that's what I had. Now, I'll tell you that there are some parallels in the church. The same could be said of the church. If you eat away at its foundations, you take away its cardinal truth, You get people away from the Bible, it's like you've got grub worms. They eat away the roots, and you're going to have a similar effect. What do you think is the greatest need or the greatest threat facing the church? The passage we're coming to at the end of Romans 16, as we've been making our way through this book, the greatest treatise of the gospel ever been given, when you get to verse 17, it hits the nail on the head, the greatest threat facing the church. I will tell you that if you avoid this passage, you overlook it, you don't apply it, you refuse to go there, your church will face the peril. It's like you've invited the grubworms to come in and do their work. You see, the greatest threat for the church is dissension and deterioration. Some people think that the greatest threat to the church today is persecution or Cultural attacks. But what those do actually is expose just how strong the church is. It'll expose whether you are truly Christ centered, whether you're standing on the word of God or not. That's what persecution and cultural attacks do. So, what does the church need to know to make sure that it's not destroyed by dissension and deterioration? Well, that's where this passage comes into play. Look at verse 17. First thing that you need to know, and we all do, is that uh, the source of dissensions and deterioration. What is the source? Well, look, he spells it out. Look at verse 17. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who will cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. So he's not talking about people that move in with, you know, difference of minor interpretations or perhaps that they're. They're new believers or they're very immature and they've got personal preferences. We're not talking about that. He says, I want you to watch out for those who call dissensions, literally create divisions and hindrances, could be translated obstacles or stumbling blocks. They are causing people to trip up. You want to make sure that no one erodes away the teaching which you have learned, i.e., like the gospel, the truths given in the book of Romans. And the other New Testament letters that are being written. Make sure that no one creates division and dissension. And he says, it's going to happen. So you keep your eye on them. Anybody that might cause some sort of impediment. It's very much like the warnings given of false prophets in the Old Testament. You know, false prophets, what they would do is they would kind of like figure out, what does the people want me to hear, want me to say? And that's what I'll tell them. So if the king wants to hear this message... The false prophets to say, God says this, and it happened to be just in line with what the people wanted to hear. Of course, God didn't say that, and God thinks pretty unkindly about false teaching and false teachers. In fact, in the Old Testament, if you said, "Thus saith the Lord," and God didn't say it, did you happen to know what God said to do? Yeah, you kill him, right? And they did. You just throw rocks and stone him because this is an abomination. Jesus made a similar warning. Remember he said, beware of the false prophets who come in and and they come in like with their wolves, but they're wearing sheep's clothing, okay? Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves, but they come in and they're dressed up like harmless little sheep, right? Little Bo Peep type folks, right? Like they couldn't hurt anybody. He says, you're going to know them by their fruits. You are going to know them by what they say and how it lines up with the words which I've given you. And so what happens is, People move in, and they are divisive. They create deterioration. Uh, they're going to try to get the spiritual leaders in the church always caught up in all these like little minor controversies, irrelevant questions, and it's like an end of the process, getting you not only off focus, but what drives them is verse 18. He says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. could even be translated Bellies, their self-interest, their own self-gratification, their sensual urges. They are not slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting, the naive, those who are just starting to grow in their faith, the immature. They're going to walk in and they're going to be winsome. They're always going to be sincere. They're going to act like they know what they're doing. They're going to actually probably be pretty articulate. But they're going to go after the unsuspecting and they're going to create corruption. They're like grub worms and they just start eating at the roots. And these are people that are not interested in the glory of God. They're not interested in the good of the church. They want to feed their own sense of need for status and prestige. They're going to want publicity, and they're going to want attention. They're going to try to convert people to believe like they do. In fact, every time they get someone to do that, it's like their credibility goes up. They feel even better about themselves. But he says, you want to watch out. You want to be careful. You want to keep your eye on those who deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. They're going to distort, perhaps, and you see it sometimes, they take a single doctrine, a single teaching out of the scripture, they exaggerate it, they distort it, they put it above all others, and they just kind of make these like one issue people, okay? And they just keep focus on it over and over. And what happens is, whether they're trying to find something new and bring it in, some sort of false teaching, or they're exaggerating a particular doctrine, they're going to try to pass off their exaggeration and their lies as truth. And that's how it comes across. It's kind of like this. This was in the news a little more than a year ago. And um, in a zoo in China, in the third largest province in China, the Beijing newspaper reported this incident took place. They apparently had to temporarily shut down this zoo because they had a very unusual problem. Visitors were coming there, paying their tickets and coming in and looking at all the animals. They saw the labels. And um, what got the problem revealed was there was a mom with her little boy, and they were standing in front of an exhibit that says, African lion. And they were looking at the African lion. And all of a sudden, the African lion started barking. Okay, and the boy's like, what? Lions don't bark, they're supposed to roar, right? And like, whoa, until everybody tried to figure out what was going on. They did an investigation, didn't take in too long, but they found out that the so-called lion was actually a Tibetan Mastiff, which is a large dog with a furry brown coat, and they had put it in the lion's cage, and they fooled all these people. Well, they're like, what other things are you trying to sell us that aren't true? Well, they did an investigation and found out in this particular zoo, they they had a white fox in a leopard's den, they had another dog being passed off as a wolf, and this was amazing. There's some very clever people working at this zoo. Uh, in the reptile house, they had replaced two snakes with these giant sea cucumbers. I don't know if they put little eyes on them or not. And they just had them there, and they got, they got discovered, right? And, of course, they had to close down the zoo. They had to address this problem. You know what the problem is? The zoo officials, they were trying to pass off something they, a, a lie, and they try to pass it off as a truth. It was a falsehood, but they were presenting it like, actually, this is what you're seeing, when in actuality, it is not. Friends, that's what false teachers do. That's what people that create divisions and are divisive, they present something that's not true as if it is. And they are very convincing. And I'll tell you, let me tell you what makes this problem far more worse. We've got a lot of people that are eager to be deceived. Now, they don't think of themselves that way. They're not like, hey, I want someone to really mess with my mind and tell me things that are true so I can believe lies. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. How it works, though, is this. We have a self-centered orientation that is reinforced in our culture. And what that means is that we are the authority. We go and seek after what we want, Right? We're not concerned so much about what God has said or that God is the sovereign authority. We're really concerned about what I want. And guess what? You put yourself in a position to find people that tell you what you want to hear. And Paul said that is exactly what's going to happen. Remember, right before Paul dies, he writes a letter called 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3 says this, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they will turn away from the truth and turn aside to what? Myths. fanciful stories. That's what's going to happen. They're going to find people that are going to tell them what they want to hear. They want their ears tickled. They're going to turn away. They're not going to tolerate sound doctrine. That word sound uh, has the idea of hygienic, okay? Healthy. And what are the sound doctrines that are being turned away from? So what are they? Well, like, for instance, that God is sovereign or that God is just. We like the idea that God's loving. That works. But that God is just, that he punishes sin? Hmm. I don't think I like to hear things like that so much. That salvation comes by grace and faith alone, that you can't earn it. I'll tell you another sound doctrine that's under attack, that the Bible is literally God's word that it is inspired, is literally God-breathed, and it is inerrant, meaning without air. It is a word from God. That doesn't fly. That God has a just wrath against sin, against the unrepentant. That he's really going to bring judgment, the deity of Christ, the physical resur- resurrection of Jesus, the return of the king, the establishment of the kingdom, a literal hell. We'll go with a literal heaven. We like that. We like there's a heaven. Not so popular to talk about hell, hell sin, judgment. So what happens is people find desire, find people that teach things that match their desires and false teachers will readily match the desires of the people they're seeking to ensnare. That's how it works. So for instance, if you don't like the idea of hell, great, we won't talk about it. We'll just talk about heaven. You don't like sin. It's such a negative thing. There's so much negativity in our world. Let's not talk about sin. One of the largest quote unquote churches in the United States today, will not use that word. That is too negative. Can't do that. You don't like the idea of repentance and brokenness before sin, before, before God because of your sin? You just avoid it. But I will tell you this. If there is no sin and there's no consequence for transgressions and you defying God and how he's laid it out in his word, then you have no need for a savior. You know that? This whole idea of Jesus dying and paying for sins on a cross, that was irrelevant and unnecessary. So what we've got is we've got a culture of folks in churches, and they pretty much, they go, the Christian mindset today is kind of like when you go into an all-you-can-eat buffet. You just pick and choose whatever you want, right? You want to be eating Jello salad and cottage cheese? We got that. You want to eat steaks? We got whatever. You see, whatever you want, we got it. And so people are very susceptible to it. It's kind of like the Bible scholar Marvin Vincent wrote. If people desire a calf to worship, a ministerial calf maker is readily found. You don't have to look too far. So what happens? Notice what the text says. They are going to deceive, verse 18, the hearts of the unsuspecting. It always starts internally in the heart, biblically speaking of the mind and the affections. They deceive. It always starts with the heart. And what are some of the false teachings that threatened the churches back in the first century, and even today? Well, for instance, you had Judaizing influences. These are people that uh, they were, came from a Jewish background. They placed their faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, but they said, "You know what? You have to maintain a lot of the Jewish dietary laws. Uh, circumcision must be practiced. We have got to observe these different festivals." That That is necessary in order to maintain your salvation. In fact, if you don't do those things, you're not a Christian. And actually, this has taken on a whole new life with the Hebraic Roots Movement. It's gaining traction. People think you've got to follow all these dietary codes and, and avoid these different things. Another false teaching that was threatening the churches uh, back then and even today is what is called syncretism. And that is where you mix Christianity, the truths of Scripture, with false ideas and other beliefs like pagan religions or Eastern myth- mysticism. And like, it's very prevalent today in what's called the New Age movement, okay? And it's not like they're going to chuck the Bible all together. No, we are going to make a little bit of Bible, a little bit of Gandhi, take some Buddhism, Hinduism, just kind of mix it all up, and that's called syncretism, okay? Uh, then you've got uh, one of the, you've got teachers and preachers that actually do that. They'll teach Bible truth, but they're also going to mix it with the heirs of culture another one uh, asceticism. this was the idea that jesus didn 't really come in the flesh. Another uh, early error that emerges in the late first century and throughout the second century is called Gnosticism and This is the idea that they promised people salvation from the material if you had the secret knowledge, the secret gnosis okay and we 've got the secret knowledge, you listen to us, you follow what we 're teaching you too can have the secret knowledge and be a part of our secret society. But, you know, maybe that was back then. Maybe we're doing a lot better now, right? I mean, we've been at it for a while. We've had the Word of God. We've got churches. We've got seminaries, right? So we probably don't have these issues anymore, do we? Well, let me just put out a few false teachings that are prevalent, a prevalent threat today. One is legalism. And that's the idea that in order to make yourself acceptable to God, you have to meticulously observe certain ceremonies, dietary laws. There's, there's a list of do's and don'ts that you have to follow in order to either A, gain salvation, or B, retain it. You've got to do these things. In fact, if you don't, then it's in question whether you are still saved or you still have a relationship with God. And this is super highly controlling. Uh, You find this with like uh, a ritualistic religion, whether it be Jewish or Catholic or Protestant or Orthodox or Islamic. It's the idea, it's a false system of works righteousness. You do these things, hence you earn God's favor. Or it's like a transaction. You do this, God gives you this. Let me give you another false teaching that is prevalent today. Antinomianism. We've mentioned it before, but maybe this is a new term for you. And this is the idea that I am saved by faith. Is that true? Absolutely. You are saved by faith in Christ and his finished work. But they add this. But that you never have to be concerned about obeying the word of God. In fact, they would go on to say that the commandments of God have no binding influence on your conscience. You don't have to follow God's word. You can't, and it doesn't really matter because you know why? You're saved by faith. I will tell you that that is a fundamental denial of Christianity and of the lordship of Jesus. Remember what Jesus said? Luke six forty-six. why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Why are you calling me Lord, but you refuse to follow what I say? That's antinomianism. Let me give you another prevalent threat in today's church. And that is liberalism in Christianity. See, in liberalism, human reason trumps. And it's stressed and treated as the final authority. And the idea of the Bible being inspired by God, that's nonsense. And the Bible being an authority, the authority, no. Human reason. Religious knowledge emerges through research and the use of reason. And it is superior to biblical revelation. So the idea of... um, divine inspiration of the Word of God. No, 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 no. That doesn't work, man. It's all up here. We make the call. And so, so liberalism, let me give you some samplings of the sort of things that they present. They would present that the Bible is not God-breathed, and frankly, it has a lot of errors. The whole idea of the virgin birth of Jesus, oh, come on now, that is seen as a myth. Uh, that Jesus literally bodily rose again no, 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 no. I mean, there may have been a spiritual resurrection or something like that, but this, this idea that Jesus bodily came from the grave, he was dead, and he was made alive, no. According to liberalism, can't work, wouldn't happen. Uh, they really want to emphasize that Jesus is a good moral teacher. Some will even say he's the best, and he, he indeed is the best moral teacher. But what they say is that his followers, uh, they've taken certain liberties with the history of his life. And they added especially miracles to the life of Jesus to kind of trump him up, to make him look a lot more than he ever claimed to be. In fact, Jesus didn't do miracles. Those things don't happen. So you find that in liberalism. The whole idea that hell is real, that man is lost in sin, that he's going to face a judgment if he doesn't trust in Christ, that doesn't fly in liberalism. In fact, they will also say that most of the human authors of the Bible are actually not the ones traditionally believed. So they would say, like, Moses didn't write the first five books of the Bible. Come on now. That that didn't happen. Or another one that they just totally can't work with is Daniel. I was like, Daniel had to be written by at least two other guys. There's just no way that someone could know the entire future of the world, prophesy it, lay it out there, and it happened exactly... The way it's written. Doesn't happen. You have to look back and, like, oh, okay, we're going to make it work this way. And they totally deny these things. Friends, these are false teachings, and they make their way into churches. I'll tell you a lot of people that, when convenient to use the Christian label, they believe these things. They've been taught them for years. Let me give you another threat that's prevalent in today's church, and that is moralism. And that's the idea that you take the book of the Bible, and it just becomes a book of things you should and should not do. It's the idea that you reduce the gospel message to a message of moral improvement. You improve your behavior. The Bible has good things to say to improve your life so that you can have a better life. In fact, you can have the best life now. That's what the Bible does. Friends, that's moralism. And basically, they reduce the gospel message to say that really what you need to do is clean up your act. That's what God wants you to do. And he's got the Bible that'll help you do that. That's all moralism. That's not the gospel. Let me give you another. Pluralism. And I'm sure you're familiar with this. This is the idea that all roads, all religions lead to the one same God. Right? Whether you're a Muslim or Hindu, a Buddhist or a Christian, they all... They all kind of go to the same God. They just go in different ways, just like they are different roads to get to the same city. And so you see it—you've seen this bumper sticker. Hopefully, you don't have one of these on the back of your car. But when I see this that coexists, I know that this is a person who has actually never investigated world religions, because you would—if you have—you know that the world religions they actually have contradict, they contradict each other on many fundamental points for instance like buddhism historically denies that even god exists hinduism on the other hand teaches that everything is a part of an all-pervasive impersonal god christianity teaches that god is personal that he's three in one that he is the creator of all things seen and unseen they all can't be true jesus said this john 14 6, i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but through me ultimately exclusive jesus says i'm it they all can't be true just even from a logical standpoint and yet there's people that buy into that let me give you some cults that are very prevalent that are eagerly desiring to be fit to fit into mainstream christianity and the one that's making the strongest push and being the most successful worldwide is mormonism they desperately want to fit into mainstream christianity and and they're, frankly, they're doing a pretty good job of it because they're encountering all these quote-unquote Christians that really know nothing about the Bible. You got an 18-year-old kid that rides a bike, and they know far more about the Bible than they've ever, these people have ever thought there's even possible, and they don't know what they believe. But are Mormons, if they hold to their teachings, truly Christians? Well, let me just give you a brief mention of some of the significant differences between biblical Christianity. And Mormonism. By the way, they're not going to want this to come up in your conversations when they show up at your doorstep. But for instance, Mormons believe that there is more than one God. They believe that Jesus Christ is the spirit brother of Lucifer. Is that in the scriptures? No. Uh, They believe that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones. That Jesus Christ was born as a result of sexual intercourse between God the Father and Mary. Is that what happened? No. I think you'll also find when talking with Mormons, they will use a lot of the same terms. They just have given different definitions. Uh, They also believe that the God the Father was once a man. That we can become gods if you are male and you follow all of the uh, teachings of the Mormon church. That you could become a god and rule over your own planets. How's that for a retirement plan? Right? Is that true? Uh, they also teach that for a half century that Adam is our father and God. And then let me give you another one. That Jesus Christ is a polygamist and Mary and Martha are among some of his wives. Is that the Bible? No. What is that? That's air. Let me give you another cult. Jehovah's Witnesses, right? These are Yahweh's Witnesses, Right? But they, they fundamentally deny the deity of Jesus Christ. they got a lot, a lot of other strange teachings, but that is one that they always are going after. They want to convince you that Jesus isn't really fully God, right? He's less than God. And then one that uh, really is in the forefront of a lot of discussion today is the whole homosexual agenda, the whole redefining of marriage. And not only is it deplorable about what's taking place in our country, but it is actually staggering what's taking place in our churches. Frankly, we have a lot of churches that are really confused on the issue. Is homosexuality, when practiced, is that is that really a sin? I don't even know what God has to say on it. They've obviously never read the book of Romans. I mean, and what happens is we have folks that are afraid to call sin, sin, okay? Whether you're having sex outside of marriage or you're practicing homosexuality, it is wrong and is sinful and God's going to judge that. You need a savior. And, but to say that the practice of homosexuality is a sin, well, all sorts of pressure, tremendous intimidation is placed upon you. You're called homophobic, intolerant, even hateful. And this is the cultural pressure. And a lot of Christians, man, my biggest priority is that I fit in and don't make waves. I want everybody to like me, right? And so I'm not going to say anything. And, and you've got a very small minority that is extremely aggressive with their agenda. And I'll tell you, even in some churches, they've endorsed this. They endorse the homosexual lifestyle. In fact, there are a lot of churches that thought, this is a pretty good idea that we'll even have some of our pastors and ministers, they will be practicing homosexuals. And if you think, well, yeah, Grant, that's, that's in other places far from where we live, what I just told you is in the front page of the Waco Trib just a few weeks ago, huh? And if you think like, well, you know, Grant, those are from some liberal churches. There's a group called the Evangelicals Concerned. Uh, they present themselves as born-again believers. They say, we believe the word of God. They just encourage the practice of homosexuality and they claim well the bible doesn't forbid homosexual activity uh those claims and the things that are kind of in there that was that was written for another age that was written to a particular culture a particular time and it's not valid for today and we will just hop skip over those things that's too problematic so friends the source of our dissensions and our deterioration it's what he spells out in verses 17 and 18 so what in the world are we to do what is the strategy that we need to have to protect the church well, look at verse 17. You might have missed this. But he says, now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you've learned. Anybody that is teaching something that is not in keeping with not only the, the, the word that's given in Romans, but the Bible, he says, keep your eye on. Uh, Greek word skopeo. In the noun form, this is where we get words like microscope or telescope. It is to identify, to see, to keep your eye on. And what does he say? You need to, look at the end of verse 17, turn away from them. It's the idea that you reject not only their teachings, but you do not give them a platform to corrupt, like the new believers in your church, to create havoc with the kids or, or be involved in a youth ministry and start getting folks going in the wrong direction. You don't give them a voice in your church. You don't. Why? Because you love the people in it. Now, he's not talking about going on some sort of witch hunt or, you know, having some sort of like mean-spirited, unloving litmus test that you've got to follow and find all these things. And, you know, people with big frowns on their face and they're just using the Bible to clobber people. We're not talking about things like that. What we're talking about here is you need a strong defense. Spiritual leaders who love their people are concerned about the diet that they have and what they're putting into their hearts and their heads because whatever you put in is going to come out their lives. Now, there's on the History Channel, there's a, a show that features a Las Vegas pawn shop. And years ago, they had an episode where uh, a guy who bought this farm, old house, old barn, while he was going through the barn, he discovered a chest, and inside this chest, he found a beautiful violin. It looked like it hardly had ever been played. And to make matters more exciting for our new landowner, it had the word Stradivarius on it. Whoa! How about that? We're going to pay for the farm. My retirement is settled. And so he took it to these pawn shop dealers and he takes this beautiful Stradivarius violin. Well, they look it over and these pawn shop guys, they actually brought in an expert to appraise this, this amazing find in this barn. Well, Lo and behold, it doesn't end up to be a real Stradivarius. In fact, the appraiser uh, told them that these, this particular violin was made in the early 1900s. It was a cheap imitation and they just happened to write the name Stradivarius on it. It's worth about 500 to 600 dollars. Would you like to sell it? The guy was completely upset and flabbergasted. But the expert, the appraiser, concluded this. Just because something has a label doesn't mean that it's real. Just because it's called Christian, just because someone presents it, this is true. This is what God says or has said or he's saying to me now. That doesn't make it true. How does it match up with the word? Friends, our strategy is we've got to have a stout defense. We're not going to let air just march in and take over. That's why this is written at the end of the book of Romans. But not only do you have to have have a stout defense, your strategy has to have even a stronger offense. Look at verse 19. He says, For the report of your obedience, you see that? The report of your obedience. To obey God is to be in an intimate relationship with him. It, obedience grows out of a love and respect and a reverence for God. I want to follow you, Lord. You've given me your spirit that the, what you have written may be accomplished in my life. For the report of your obedience has reached all. When you're walking with the Lord, following his word, it has a way of having implications and people hear about it. It's reached to all. And Paul says, therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. Why? Because you are faithful. But I want you to be wise in what is good. I really want you to know the truth. I want you to have wisdom. I don't want you to stay an infant. I want you to grow to the fullness of maturity. And I want you to be innocent in what is evil. Not ignorant of evil. You have to know a little bit about the dangers you're facing. But you really, you want to emphasize wisdom. What is good. What is pure. What is lovely. I need to tell you something about the church. The church is not a human institution, but it is the body of believers. The church belongs to God. You don't like create church and do it like a business. This belongs to God. That's why God makes it crystal clear. I want my word taught to the people publicly, large group, small group, one-on-one. I want the word. That's why he said Paul writes final words. 2 Timothy 4. Remember verse one, he says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who judge the living, and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. This is what I want you to do. I want you to preach the word. I want you to be ready in season and out of season. I want you to reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. I want the word taught. That is how people grow. Do you know, by the way, the, the best defense is a stronger offense. You want to have a nice yard? Well, yeah, you pull the weeds, but what you really want to do is you want to foster growth and health. You want to develop the root systems. You don't let the grub worms move in, and you develop health. And that's what he says. You see, he wrote the same principles in Ephesians 4. Remember he said, talking about the church, I've given the church pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And he says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and the knowledge of the Son of God to a, listen to this, a mature man, that you got maturity to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, he says, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in, up into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. We're to grow up. We are to mature. And this is how it's done. You have a stronger offense. It's kind of like I've heard this principle said. If it's true, it's probably not new when it comes to the Bible. And if it's new, it's probably not true. What does the word say? So this is what we need to know, friends, if we don't want our church torn up by dissension and deterioration. But notice what he says in verse 20. We need to know the strength to overcome. Because you know what? On our own, I don't think we're going to make it. We need God. And look at verse 20. Now, notice what he says. The God of peace. He will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's going to do it. And he says, and the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. God ultimately will be the victor. But you and I need God's grace. We need grace for discernment. We need grace to withstand the assault. We need grace to go together. We need God's, the riches of relationship that comes from Christ that is completely unearned and unmerited. We need grace, and we have it when we have Christ. And it's see, it's God's grace that keeps us loving Christ and keeps us in the Word. And you know what? Even great churches, like churches in Rome, remember last week we actually looked at some of these folks? These were like awesome people, right? Could they be corrupted? Could their churches go down the drain? Yeah, they could. It happens all the time. You know why? Because this passage is ignored. You see, the greatest threat to the church is dissension and deterioration. Some of you have seen the Niagara Falls. Water drops 180 feet, and it's just powerful. And it's got a lot of rough water uh, coming up to that point. But, But before then, on the Niagara River, there's actually areas that are pretty calm. And you can navigate your little boat, and there's, you can walk across kind of where the Welland River empties into the Niagara. There's, this, there's a walking bridge that goes over there. And on the pylons, uh, there's a sign for all the boaters who are just kind of cruising around to look at. And the sign simply says this, do you have an anchor? And it follows by, do you know how to use it? Friends, our faith in God and in Christ, that is our anchor. His word is our anchor, and we've got to use it because, friends, if we do not, if you let the grubworms come in and eat up your roots, there is a spiritual cataclysm, and it won't be pretty. So the greatest threat to the church is dissension and deterioration. You simply can't let the grubworms come in. Let's pray. Lord, this is a powerful passage. We know that you have written it at the end of Romans So that we would never fall prey to false teaching, that we would be on the alert, and that we would love you greatly. So, God, I pray for the protection of our church. Until your son returns, may we always be in your word, growing in grace, making disciples, taking you seriously. And may we be reaching out with love to the people in our community. And, Father, only you can do this. In fact, you've promised to do so even in your word. And Father, for someone who has come here today who's never trusted in Jesus, would they simply pray with me and say, God, I, I turn from sin. Some of the things that uh, were even referenced today, I've actually believed or held. that I realize that Jesus is the one true God, and I turn from self and sin, and I trust in Christ. And I ask that he might be the Lord of my life. And Lord, for all of us, may we walk in the wonders and the joy of your ways. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.